Our goal here at the Hammer Factor is to help successful athletes share their genius with the world, and we have a very special athlete on with us today, none other than Annabelle Anderson from New Zealand. She's a five-time winner of the Carolina Cup and had over 300 weeks at number one in the world. Um, welcome to the show, Annabelle. How's it going? Hey, good, thank you. So 300 weeks at number one. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, they uh, came up with a system and I started at the top and it, it wasn't until I kind of stepped aside that I relinquished that position. So um, as far as I'm concerned, while I was there, no one else was. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll, I'll, I'll agree with but that. I like, perf- I, I like perfect scores. So maybe it's an inner perfectionist uh, that was coming to the fore on that one uh, but it was definitely interesting the the game kept changing as in the person who was or still kind of does control the ranking systems uh, was constantly adjusting um, the playing field so it was a case of okay what set of rules are we playing to this week this month this year <laughs> doesn't actually mean anything to me but it does mean a lot it did mean a lot to people that I worked with uh, in lieu of a system which was fundamentally broken as in there has been fights for governance for a very long time so that was the one thing that couldn't be argued with and so all I really cared about was consistency over time across every single discipline. Well I think you definitely showed that and before we dig into this interview, can you share something with our listeners that most people probably don't know about you? That I worked for multinationals around the globe um, once I finished university because my body was broken from my first foray into attempts at having an athletic career. What was that? Let's start from the beginning. How, tell me about that. I suppose I've done literally anything and everything and I was probably one of those kids that just loved the doing and loved sport and so any excuse to have time off school to do sport uh, was better than sitting in a classroom and I don't think that changed you know you become a you know a, a product of your environment so Grew up in the mountains um, in the South Island of New Zealand, and I really loved to ski. Um, I'd skied my entire life. Uh, so don't ask me how a kid that really doesn't come from rich parents ski races, but where there is a will, there is a way. Um, and I probably spent more time um, DNFing than finishing races, but holy shit, when I did finish races. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there were there there was a there was a fair amount of trophies and medals collected along that way until um, a critical moment when I was seventeen and I should have just been able to stay on my feet that day. Um, it was a shitty day at Mount Hutt with boot top sludge. It was raining on snow. <laughs> it was white out, and I went to take one more like like one more like slip through the training course and a rut hadn't been slipped out and that was the end of my tibia you broke <laughs> and your the tibia. end of my i didn't just break it i smashed it 
put rods down it, screws through it because it has fire fractions. Oh no. Yeah, but in, in true style, I was like, don't cut my suit off. Oh. I still have the suit. Was it that? Was, were, was there talk of that with that injury? No, no, no. I was like, don't cut my suit as in my GS suit. Oh, oh gotcha. Don't cut your... I oh, thought... no, 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 no. It, was, no it, was, it wasn't a compound fracture or anything like that. I broke it in the boat. It was like buckle line. Um, but that was the end of my skiing career, whether I liked it or not. I tried very hard to continue to ski, and um, 11 months later, promptly blew out my right ACL for the first time of many. <laughs> so, so, you know, just just send it over a massive tabletop uh, in a, a qualifying round of a ski across, and uh, yeah, bye bye ACL. Oh, so man. I spend, uh, yeah, age 17. Oh, and I think in the midst of there, I don't know what you call it in the States, but I think you call it mono in the States, but I got acute glandular fever, um, ended up back in hospital. Um, I had all the rods and stuff taken out of my leg, and um, then I had an ACL um, that was completely blown. Um, so, yes, I. it's not like I haven't um, been through the wars. I, I have been through the wars on repeat most of my life. But, uh, yeah, let's just say that from a young age, we learned to be resilient. Yes, indeed. So I was reading through your bio here, and it says you had 11 surgeries before the age of 24. Yeah. And so were those all with skiing or were you into other sports at that point? No, most of them, like probably most of them are, dare I say it, skiing related. And the whole thing is, is like I'm not an accident prone person. I just know that there's inherent risks when you do certain things with frequency and frequency over time. Um, I, you know, like I was out running in the Port Hills of Christchurch and I jumped out, I vaulted over a fence um, a couple of years later and that destroyed, and I landed, you know, I was fit as heck. And it was when I landed, like my whole knee gave way and that was not just the ACL that time, but, you know, could work. I didn't have an ACL, um, but it was, you know, the medial and lateral meniscus both got torn. So then the whole thing had to be repaired. But then six months later, just before triathlon world champs um, in the elite under 23 division, um, I got pushed too fast, too soon doing plyometrics um, at run training. And that was, you know, <laughs> that was my medial meniscus gone again. Um, oh, savage. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. So, I turned up and watched World Champs in Queenstown uh, on my crutches and go, okay, if this is World Champs, it really is actually no big deal. So maybe we just like finish university and uh, get on with things. But then in that final year of university, I went back skiing because like my leg that I had broken badly um, we had calmed down to the point that I could actually put a boot on for more than um, a day at a time. And Big Fat Twin Tips had just come out, and it, it really gave me my love back for skiing. And Big Mountain was becoming a, a thing. And when you come from a, a technical ski racing background and you don't have too much fear of terrain or speed, um, that was fine until I, the inspection run. And at the end of the inspection run at the Remarkables, 
I had a Jeff cookie of ice going back to, just like on a groomer, going back to the lift. And that was my ACL done again. Oh. But don't worry, but don't worry, no one actually believed me that my ACL was, was gone. They basically told me to suck it up, um, stop wasting everyone's time, Annabelle. And uh, yeah, so I pretty much gave the middle finger to a lot of things and, you know, finished you know, went back, finished university as one of the top graduates of the country that year and um, was put into the cut and thrust of the corporate world because my brain was probably about the only thing that wasn't broken at that point. Um, so, and then had another surgery in that first year of work. <laughs> oh, savage. So before we get into how you transitioned or how you found paddleboarding, what were you doing in corporate America, what was your what was your job? I wasn't in corporate America. I was in the UK. In the UK, okay. And what were you doing? Banking, finance. Uh, so I had come out of the financial services industry in New Zealand. Um, I was working for American Express at the height of the global financial crisis, and I think I lasted like five rounds of redundancies before I finally got a golden handshake and. I had come back and gone skiing uh, for three months <laughs> and then decided that if I wasn't going to, if I didn't take the opportunity to throw myself overseas there at that point, then I could have a very nice, safe life in New Zealand. I did lots of fun things. I had the world at my doorstep, but um, the safe route with the white picket fence was a little too boring for my liking and I could see the writing on the wall end up being painted for me rather than me being able to decide what was best for my future right yeah so I ended up in London at the height of a double recession um you know working for five pounds 60 on the emergency tax rate tempting (laughs) Really? And there's nothing, there's no, there's nothing, yeah, oh, I, I ran uh, at least one way, you know, to the city at least. I ran at least 12 k's, if not 24 k's, depending on if I wanted to eat that day, um, to and from, you know, like southwest London to the city to work. But, you know, that's what you do to survive. And that was the game was about surviving and not spending anything that I didn't have. Right. So it was a game. And at some point you found your way into SUP. Was was there a mentor or how how did that transition happen? Shit, no. Um, <laughs> probably by accident. It was both accidental and incidental, I think. Uh, I had been, ex- let's just say, I had been exposed to paddling when I was living in Auckland because I did a huge amount of sailing um, and there was you know a couple of boards lying around at West Haven Marina and I would go and grab them off a boat and you know, paddle up the harbour in the dark at night in the winter um, to cope with living in the city um, but nothing you know like I'm talking you know 10 footers with probably a paddle that was way too big and way too long. Right. Um, 
that we, you know, was circa the first layered quick blade, you know, collaboration just to actually, you know, you know, create something that allowed you to propel yourself through the water. Um, but when I was in London, I was just like, oh, I wonder if I can do that thing here. Really just reiterating what I'd done in New Zealand. And I was like, well, there's a bunch of rowers that are sitting down going backwards on this dirty piece of water. Um, I ride along it. I run along it on the daily. So I finally balls up enough courage and asked went into London Rowing Club because I'd run past, I would run past there all the time in Putney and asked the guy, I, like, asked, I was like, the, I think the head rowing coach was Aussie and he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah you, can, you can throw a board in here. So it would take me, I think, probably about another eight months before I had saved up enough <laughs> um, to actually purchase um, – a board to put in like the rowing the rowing <laughs> shed um, because I was like no like I was like that's what my tax refund that was what my uh, tax refund got used for after that first year in London um, but I was ridiculously fit because I never took the tube and I commuted everywhere on foot and on a fixie no matter whether it was you know, summer or winter and when was your first competition well in true Kiwi DIY style. I somehow had found it, found out that there was an event in Hamburg, Germany, and I had also found out that uh, if you got there, the whole the whole rest of the weekend was covered. So being <laughs> someone that had let's let's face it, I had I don't know that many people that <laughs> will use the human combustion engine to save the amount of money that I did, but I did. And so the concept of going somewhere for a weekend and all I had to do was get there, um, yeah, that's, I managed to talk the the organisers into giving me an entry because it was quite invitational back in those days at the Haver World Cup um, in Hamburg. Um, I jumped on an easy, booked an easy jet flight and turned up in Germany for the first time and lo and behold I managed I think I had like two and a half days maybe two or three days before the event no it was a two-day event I think I had two days beforehand to figure out what it was to like be on one of these like funny elf shoe shaped (laughs) race boards it was now you know basically as narrow as your hips um, and and I did, and I walked home with, yeah, got back on that energy jet plane with about 2,000 euros in my pocket. I was just like, okay, where are we going next weekend? <laughs> <laughs> so, you t- so you took the win at your first event? No, I didn't take the win. Jenny Kalmbach from Hawaii took the win, but I got a very close second. And then... At that point, you were like, okay, this may be a thing that I can get behind. At that point, how old were you? No, no, wasn't anything like that. It was just like, oh, wonder, <laughs> wonder, wonder if we can do stuff next weekend as well. <laughs> um, the irony of that whole thing is that that probably, you know, was the, the height and peak of that whole thing, you know, worldwide uh, with a few 
you know, caveats, uh, let's just say. But I don't really think it sowed the seed. I think it it gave I, – I saw it as a way to go places to use a skill that – use skills in fitness to see and experience places, obviously, while using my head Monday to Friday. <laughs> Right. For other benefits. Right. And so at some point you started winning races. I mean, you almost won the first one you entered. Was there ever a point when you really had maybe that aha moment or um, it really clicked in your head that you were going to take this for a ride? Uh, yes or not. I, I think that, that actually happened quite organically and it was probably I put a stake in the ground and was like if I'm going to do something I tend to do it properly um, but I came back to New Zealand that winter um, for like I think I was meant to be out like two and a half weeks are we talking about New uh, Zealand for, winter or North America no in the North, no the European winter okay so this is like end of 2010 okay. so end of oh so after Hamburg uh, I, there's a real legend of a guy, like one of the like total OGs, EJ Johnson, uh, Ernest Johnson from um, Southern California. He was like, Amber, you have to come to this thing called Battle of the Paddle. I'm like, whatever. Anyway, I knew people who lived in LA. And so I went to Battle of the Paddle and I'd never surfed away from my life. <laughs> I think I was. I, I don't. I don't think it was my finest moment or my finest hour, um, but it it gave me an idea of what things were, and I probably went back to London with my tail between my legs going, I absolutely and utterly and categorically suck. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like the reality is I had borrowed board and things like that, but, you know, I got to go to California for, you know, a couple of days um, and between Europe and California, it's really not that difficult to get to and from. But then I managed to go to, I managed to, I totally winged it. It was so last minute um, to pull the logistics together to go to Paris for the first um, race across the scene that they had in December, at the very start of December. And it was a snowstorm and, you know, everything was in French. And I think I, you know, it was about 200 metres back from the line before it started, but the fact that it actually made it to the start line was a minor miracle because I think I got the last train to Paris and no no planes were flying. And then they were like, ah, because of the forecast, no one is – only they had cut down the numbers like significantly, but I had you know, managed to find someone that had some degree of influence. And I'm like, okay, okay, you can start. And so I got a start, and um, but I didn't just win. I think I was the third fastest guy that day, um, as you do. So, <laughs> I, you know, that was like, oh, maybe I'm actually not too bad at this thing, but I really actually have no idea. And it wasn't until I was back in New Zealand for a sailing regatta um, for like two and a half weeks, you know, I suppose getting out of the, the cold and shit of um, a very horrifically bad London winter um, but my the guy that I reported to like at work was like 
and about you can't have more than two weeks off in a row. I was like, what? <laughs> like, that's just not a thing. That's just not a thing in New Zealand. Like, take two weeks off, you take two weeks off, you take four weeks off. Some of it's paid leave, some of it's unpaid leave. You go back to your job. Uh, he was like, you actually have to resign, but don't worry, we'll figure it out when you get back. Well, let's just say that uh, I, I, and I still had my flat and everything in London. I still had my life over there. Um, I got convinced to go in and present at the Starboard Conference in Thailand on the way back. And, and, I was, and I'd found out that there was all these other kind of events happening. And I, the reality was, was that I had to renew my work visa and well, ex- get, try and get an extension on my work visa or like get a different kind of visa. Um, in about six months' time anyway. So I was just like, you know what? Let's just do this. <laughs> There's one way to travel and we'll use this. Um, and if I probably hadn't have done that, I probably would have been committed to the concrete jungle. Right. You know, driving a desk. And so you jumped right in at that point. And what year was that? Uh, that was 2011. When I say jumped right in, it was... It was more a case of you know how I lived in London as well but what most people probably don't realize is that I had saved quite a lot in London I had definitely had some great contracts and I had squirreled away a lot but I was like no you're not allowed to you're not allowed to spend anything you save the play has to pay and your challenge is to get from A to B you know making it pay its way uh, so I didn't have any sponsorship. I didn't have a contract. I didn't have a stipend. I literally, you know, had the seed money from the little things that I'd done. So I, I very much had to, to hustle my way from A to B. But while I didn't have money, I had time was probably my greatest resource. So if it was going to take, you know, eight hours, but it, you know, cost a fraction of the cost versus two hours which cost considerably more. I was probably going to take the eight-hour option because right. I had the, right. the ability to do that. Right. So how did you get so good? Like during this time, during this transition, you know, what were you doing to, to increase your skills, increase your fitness? What, what was going on? Well, I think most people forget that I was, I was incredibly fit when I started and I'd had, you know, the, be- the better part of 15 years of training, you know, knowing how to train as a, a high-performing athlete. I'd come out of um, pretty significant, I suppose, pretty significant programs or under the guidance of um, very well-respected you know, endurance-type coaches. And the reality is, is that it's the same, same, but different. You know, it's the same principles that apply no matter what kind of things you do. And I look back at all the things that I do now that I've done and I go, oh, I noticed a similarity between this session and that session and this sport and that sport. I mean, like, it's until the human body changes, some fundamentals are categorically going to remain the same. And people have tried to go, oh, but we can shortcut this and we can do it this way that isn't necessarily like I 
yeah, that's highly debatable. Like I kind of go back to if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, when we need to uh, adapt because of various things, let's look at ways that we can adapt. But I had a massive, I'd, I'd paid a lot of deposits into the bank. And I think the other critical thing was I fundamentally know how to race. And I don't think many of my competition have ever really truly known how to be a competitor in a, in a sense of actually knowing how to have race craft. Right. You mentioned a second ago that these basic principles applied across all sport. What would you, what would you say some of those principles are? Well, you know, you have to build an engine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. That actually takes a considerable amount of time to do. And I'm not talking, talking days and weeks. I'm talking years. (laughs) Um, And it's just like, you can't, nothing happens over overnight and someone just, doesn't get lucky it's the culmination of years and years of deposits and investment of time i love that that is brilliant if you're listening to this show right now that was some words of wisdom right there from annabelle it doesn't happen overnight you have got to constantly make deposits into that bank well you can be an overnight success that that started 20 years ago (laughs) yeah yeah you know, you mentioned that you have this multi-sport background. A lot of the athletes that I've interviewed on this show, it's almost like this multi-sport thing and experiencing these different sort of competitions, this different sort of skill set that's required. It really transitions and helps. Can you speak to that? I mean, is the how is how is I mean, I know that you've done triathlons and you know obviously you as we talked about earlier were a competitive ski racer how does that multi-sport how does that how does that transition back and forth i think there's a lot of research now which is actually showing up that that's beneficial rather than you know the the commonly held thinking that kids have to specialize really early otherwise they're going to be a flunk and a failure um I I think it builds well-rounded well well-rounded humans and let's face it like sport is there's an element of sport that is about performance and the way that I have like had a relationship with sport in the last you know decade has definitely been around I uh, you have no choice other than pretty much to show up and win and very much on a performance level but sport is highly metaphorical for life and you know that's not just a couple of things that I did like I grew up riding horses and riding horses very competitively and playing tennis very competitively along with field hockey and netball and basketball and um, athletics and goodness like if there was something going on I was probably doing it (laughs) and it was you know like triathlon was very much a, a thing which you know the scouting for that people don't start doing triathlon they typically come from other sports first so they'll typically come from swimming backgrounds or actually no like you can't actually be a good triathlete and this is where you know 
it was just like the simple thing was was an Olympic distance triathlon. I didn't. I wasn't ever going to make first pack in the swim. So no matter how much time and trust me, I applied. I put in the the hard yards. I was probably either I didn't respond to the coaching methodology that was being used, or I didn't. I just didn't have the the talent or the feel for the water. So that, but you know, like if I had been in a different place and um, under the influence of different people, I probably would have made a fairly decent seventy point three athlete. Um, you know races around four hours um you know that a lot of it is you know it goes with being a strength-based strength-based athlete the reality is that I know that over the years I've probably had the chance to be and like a world I would say a world-class cyclist I've definitely had the potential to be but I've never actually realized like I've never either made the opportunity or been given the opportunity to really test myself in that, you know, thing. And I kind of go, sure, I could go and do it now, but I'm 37 years old. There's also, like, other parts of life that are increasingly important that have been sacrificed for a really long time. And if I was 23, I'd be like, yeah, okay, maybe we go down that route. The reality is, is I can ride my bike, I can go and head out with guys, I can ride on the dirt, and I can do a lot of things, and I have nothing to prove other than, oh, should we go and, like, drop some bot bombs? (laughs) (laughs) And and drill you up a hill. (laughs) So, obviously, I mean, 300 weeks, number one, you've had a lot of successes, not only in stand-up paddling, but other sports. But let's step away from that. What's... What's been your lowest moment? What's what's the part where you were at the bottom? I think it was probably like when I was about 17 uh, or my, when my final year of school and I didn't just have a really, really promising ski racing career taken away. I couldn't walk. I couldn't go to school. I had acute glandular fever that then got worse and worse and worse and I no one could tell me like, where there was going to be an end to this thing. No, no, everyone's planning on going to college and, you know, all these exciting things of life and I still can't walk and I don't know what I'm doing with my life. And from someone that, you know, like I wasn't just, um, you know, an achiever in the field of sport, I was an academic scholar. I had been at a very, very prestigious school on you know, a sporting scholarship, but I also, you know, won academical, you know, was highly academic as well. And the feeling of failure in the eyes of others and the judgment or the lack of answers. Oh, so what are you doing? I'm like, I don't know, but I know that something will eventually happen. Um, that was pretty low. It was like probably that was like, I haven't suffered a huge amount of grief in my life as in losing people that have been really close friends or family but you know like that was probably the closest I've come to grief of like having something that I've worked so hard towards fought so hard for and it was taken away and it was literally and it, it was literally a grieving process and I 
think that when you do put, it's like it would be like losing a business or losing a baby or something like that. And it seems so artificial and superficial to say something about sport. But when you put that much of your heart, soul and life and dedication and focus into, uh, it is literally a grieving process. Um, but like anything, you, I don't know. I've had, I've had lots of life has definitely catch me in the guts on a number of occasions. I mean, it's no different to now. Um, <laughs> scared off a cliff, but I, you know, I, you know, from being 17 and, you know, having the world, you know, look golden to the world crumbling, um, really through no fault of my own. It just, you know, it gives you a set of tools. Now I want to get, I want to get into this skiing off a cliff thing because I uh, follow you on Instagram and I've seen some of the posts that you've you've kind of um, you know mentioned this. But before we get into that, what do you think? So obviously you bounced back from that. You know, at 17 years old, you came you you came back to I mean to a phenomenal level, like the best in the world kind of level. How did you do that? What's your, what's the takeaway for someone who's in that rut right now? What would you tell them? just keep showing up I don't know like like life will give you a break at some point and I literally have to tell myself this every day um it's okay to be pissed off because life isn't actually that great because if you if you try and pretend that it's great you know you're never actually gonna really truly enjoy it when things are going really well um but just you have to commit to the process and you have to do stuff which has an impact and effect on every single day. Like the the reality is, is that with with injuries that you know, may have required, you know, a bit of orthopedic carpentry because basically those guys do go in with saws and hammers and mallets and bash the shit out of you while you're under anaesthetic. It takes a certain amount of time for the body to be able to repair and recover and rehabilitate from that. Um, and sometimes the, you know, the showing up bit is actually doing nothing, giving because there's a certain period of time where all the healing takes place. But the healing is in your best interest, um, you know, until it has healed and got to a point where you can start to maybe stress a joint or a bone um, or something like that. You know, you can't actually do anything with it. So it's kind of like be your own best friend. <laughs> Right. Be, your, be your biggest supporter. Be your own best coach. So there's a thing of being, you can be aggressively conservative, but be highly, highly objective around, no, like I've, I've seen, I have a, like a photo of the diagram of bone, you know, bone and joint and tissue healing. And I send it to a lot of people because I'm like, you broke a bone. You cannot actually do anything for this period of time. Okay? Got it. Awesome. Go occupy your brain with something else. (laughs) Until this period of time has passed, categorically, I'm not going to do yourself any favors. Right, right. But that's that's objectivity rather than subjectivity. That and make sure you show up. I like that one. I'm going to write that one down. Um, Just keep showing up. It's pretty simple. (laughs) In the most basic, basic way. So, what you fell off a cliff? What happened here? Um. Well, 
I mean, start from the top. So, Where were you? What was going on? You know, how did this yeah. happen? This is, this is in the uh, bank of freak accidents, and freak accidents do actually happen, and they happen when you least expect them. Uh, so I was, we're out the back of Triple Cone, and it was just a mellow day. Scare. I was skiing with some old boys that I was would been trying to pull a day skiing together for probably about just over a week, and we've been looking at the weather and things like that. And we're like, "Yes, Thursday. Let's go up Thursday." So we did, and they picked me up in the morning, and I had someone with them that I hadn't seen for years as well. And so there was just banter, like going round and round in circles, <laughs> and. We were out the back, like out the back of Triple Cone, and it's kind of the area where you go ski touring. Um, there's phenomenal backcountry. They're incredibly like big, steep uh, shoots and couloirs. And forgive, forgive me, where is this at? Is this on the south? So Island? yeah, so Triple Cone is um, pretty much like a free skiing mecca um, in southern outs of the South Island at the very edge of the Mount Aspiring National Park. Okay. It's closest to Wanaka. It's probably about the most picturesque ski field in the world. Like the, you just look out over the landscape and well, like over the mountains and Lake Wanaka. It's, it's phenomenal. Um, and so that's fine. We're skiing and like, I think there'd been like, a tiny, tiny bit of, you know, it was the end of August, a uh, tiny, tiny bit of snow overnight, but it was pretty much dust on crust because we'd, you know, just had, you know, a couple of weeks of, you know, it had pretty much gone to melt freeze. Uh, and so we're like, okay, let's just go and find stashes. And, you know, this is when like, I've grown up at that mountain, you know, the, the way to get the best out of any mountain is go ski with a local because they'll always know where to go no matter what the conditions are or what the weather is. And so it was fine. I was like, yes, let's go ski the meadows and we'll pop out before we get to the top of the Mototapu shoots, which is a thing. And we're like, it was, it was great. It was great condition. We're like, we found great snow for what the conditions were that day. And I did a big sweeping left-hander at pace to pop up and over a ridge to go back over to um, the Saddle Basin. And I misjudged what I thought was a compression that was a cliff that faced back up the hill. Because we never enter the Mototapu shoots from from that. So I got launched. Like, this is the thing. I had no intention. Like, I am so risk-averse. Like, I have destroyed my body has been so destroyed um i do not jump shit i do not land stuff i rear i am so lucky to be able to do the stuff that i can do with my knee um it's you know like i don't jump stuff on mountain bikes because i'm like i just have no net the risk versus reward equation just doesn't work for me these days um so (laughs) i got launched I got knocked out on impact. That was, and then apparently, <laughs> it's, well, I know because I've skipped troll, shit, <laughs> from what skipped troll told me later on. Um, I ended up at the very bottom of the Mototapu shoots 
about 450 vertical meters. So calculating that in feet, and um, it's probably about 1,500 feet uh, below. Uh, and full yard sale, um, I came to, uh, like, when I came to, I was already tractioned and in a sled. So for something to go categorically wrong, Ski Patrol are never there. There is no cell phone coverage. But for some reason, Ski Patrol will one shoot over that day. I think they were repositioning sleds or something. I'm not, you know, like, uh, I'm talking like blood wagons, etc. Uh, because every now and then, so it's out of bounds, but it's, it's kind of patrolled. And for them to be there and right there, um, and they were like, okay, this is a suspected femur, pelvis, and um, spinal. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I wasn't allowed to move. <laughs> they, when I came to, I was fully tractioned in a blood wagon. So you were, you were, you were out skiing. Yeah. And you were going from. I'm trying to get a visual on this from one couloir to I was the next. Oh, no, I was like, we were on terrain, which sits above that. And so it's just big sweep. It's called the meadows. So it's just big sweeping. It's just a big bowl with lots of terrain. Yeah, you know, it's lots of terrain. So, you know, you just, you turn with the contours of the hill, basically. Right, um, right, right. But below that contour what, is a 1,500-foot cliff or very steep. No, it's very, very steep. So I tumbled. 1500 feet over rocks and cliffs <laughs> and so you're broken so you're out for an extended period of time you're full traction. no i was i was medevaced out of there like okay the helicopter let's just say that the helicopter came to me <laughs> right 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 and so they get you to the hospital and they yeah. say what do they tell you um we get to the hospital and I think I'm put through a, C, like a CT scan, first of all, and they're like, oh, right, CTs and X, full body CT because they were worried about my head, obviously internal injuries, et cetera. And the, I can't remember whether it was then or after they x-rayed my, my pelvis and stuff and my hip was dislocated. Um, so <laughs> long story short, they like fire me. They, when you've, had, like if you have dislocated a hip, you've got a very very short window to get it back in, um, to and for it to be successful, like uh, successfully be put it back in. So I was then put into surgery, um, had my hip back put back in, and then another number of other I suppose tests and things um, run. But the guys that I had been skiing with came in the chopper and we just had jokes the whole time. I've never actually laughed so hard when something has <laughs> been such a categorical fuck-up. <laughs> and so when was that, and where are you at right now? That was the end of August, so I'm, like, basically six months now. Um, basically, a lot of people have told me a lot of bad news stories, uh, and I'm pretty good with dealing with information as long as I can deal in fact. Um, but... You know, uh, you know, no one, no one can actually really tell me anything. So it's kind of like, well, how long is a piece of string? Um, so I really took it on myself to, um, 
I suppose, project manage the whole recovery uh, and go, I will seek second opinions. I will look outside the box on this one. And like I went and saw the the guy that is supposedly the person that I needed to, the specialist that I needed to see about my hip. Um, and they were trying to propose that they would do open hip surgery, re-dislocate my hip, um, resurface it, drill holes in it, and try and get the articular cartilage to regrow. So to put it mildly, like I didn't just dislocate my hip. I fractured. So the head of the femur got two centimetres of bone chipped off it. I wiped that, took with it um, the articular cartilage that surrounds like the head of the femur as it sits in the hip socket. Um, I fractured the acetabular, like, so as the head of the femur, um, so it was a poss- like a front-to-back dislocation. So it probably happened on like the first impact. Um, I think the head of the femur would have punched into the pelvis, fractured that, tearing both the psoas and the labrum at the same time. Oh. So... <clears throat> But that's not it. Like, if you start at the top of my body and walked the way to my feet, like, the whole left side got blown out. So, like, I I have scrapes down my spine from landing on rocks. Oh, so... I have, like, I'm literally scarred down my lumbar spine, and that was through four layers of clothing. Oh, so... Are you walking now? Where, where are you at right now in this recovery process? Mm, I'm running. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. That is absolutely <laughs> incredible. That just that gives me cold chills, I, Annabelle. I, 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 surfed my fir- I, I surfed my first wave like this past weekend. It wasn't uh, a big wave, but I still surfed a wave. Oh, that um, is so incredible. Yeah, like, but no, what's incredible is like, I looked outside the box. I went back to my doctor in the States um, who had been on to me for ages. <laughs> like, God, Actually, every week he'd go, so when are you coming back? Um, and we, but, well, we injected my, the head of my femur and my hip, like hip and my pelvis with um, regenerative formulas and, um, is because I fractured the tibial plateau, I wiped the articula- the cartilage under my kneecap. I had like a grade three full rupture of the MCL as well as I did the AC joint and the rotator cuff on my left shoulder, not to mention I almost blew a lung. <laughs> almost punctured oh. a lung. Not quite, but I almost did. And the, the really deep stuff is still um, getting there, uh, as in the deep you know, the, the deep whiplash stuff is still coming out. Um, oh, and, you know, that was the third concussion. Or not, not the third. The, that was that was a major, major t- like traumatic brain injury. <laughs> that is uh, – and a concussion is nothing to play with. None of those injuries are anything to play with. And to have them all on top of each other is so compounding. And six months later, you're out for a jog. I mean – no, I run pretty much every day. From my like, from my end, I'm 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 recommending some bed rest, Annabelle. <laughs> do you know what the hardest thing right now is? I get asked in in a very judgmental way. So what are you doing? 
what are you doing with your life? I'm like, <laughs> mate, I, I could not. And until someone has walked in those shoes or walked in my shoes, I'm like, let's trade places for a day and then maybe you might not ask that in um, a very pointed, uh, <laughs> you know, pointed way. <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty rough. Like, I'm fine as long as I'm fine when I deal with objectivity and that I do what I can to – I do whatever I can to affect what I can on a daily basis. And I, I you know, it, it's not even in the realm of marginal gains. We're talking, like, I get, like, 0.01% better every day. You can't actually really tell. But then when I look back at, okay – probably better than where I was three weeks ago there's been there's totally been some monumental oh my god you you pushed it just a touch I've been aggressively conservative with the recovery but you know like I I, at four weeks when I got told by oh I I've had some quite horrific there's some there's definitely been some horror stories out of this one of I think I had to go back to the fracture clinic in Dunedin um, to have my hip checked. And they go, yeah, well, it's probably not going to be very good. So, but, you know, uh, let's, you know, you can walk out of here. <laughs> and as I, I'm walking out at the reception and the old ladies at reception go, yeah, you just keep hold of those crutches for a while. Yeah, you might need them again. <laughs> oh, God. But I think, you know, like I, I get back, you know, it's it's a basically a four-hour drive to Dunedin and I get back that evening and I, I'm like, okay, let's walk, to, you know, walk down to the end of the, we'll walk 400 metres to the end of the street, down to the lake. And, and some poor person, like I think I had two people at, that first day go, do you need a ride? <laughs> I'm like, no, no, this is, like, you actually have no idea. Like, this is pretty much, like, the <laughs> the, best the best day of thing. my life. <laughs> well, it's been, like, the best day in four weeks. And it'll look like shit. It probably feels like shit, but it's progress. <laughs> and I think this is the thing of going, I just keep, I suppose I just keep showing up. And that's, you know, what I keep doing, like, and I, in all honesty, like, I've been able to paddle since pretty early on in this one, but, like, the tibial plateau fracture did not like it. It was more a case of the lake was really, really cold, or the lake's really cold here until, say, like, the end of, well, until December, actually. And... So it wasn't in my best interest to do something like if something happened, because remember, like when you have, when you've had a dislocated hip and fractures and ruptured ligaments and stuff like that, your balance isn't what it was. And I have really narrow boards and sure I could have gone and something really thing, but it was like, if I fell or for some reason got off balance, I wouldn't be able to get back on and stand up. So it's a case of going just because you can do something, don't put yourself in a situation where you're not going to be able, you're not going to be able to actually kind of get home. Uh, 
but you know, like, so I think a couple of days I tried prone pad. I have a super narrow, like 23 inch wide board. And I was like, I'm just going to prone paddle. So I put a wet, you know, put a wetsuit on. It was a beautiful day. And that's when I realized, yeah, you pretty much got a bunch of fractures down your spine as well. So actually how about we don't do that? Oh, and the water is like about nine degrees Celsius and you can do about 30 strokes at a time before you have to try and like get the feeling back into your fingers. So there's been multiple fails along the way. Um, But what I did do was I put the seat on my mountain bike up and I like, and this is like once I got cleared to, be able to you know attempt to walk wouldn't call it walking I'd call it shuffling and hobbling and whatever else and I was like so I put my sneakers on and I I was like if I can actually get on my bike let's just see if we can ride a bike because I knew that actually being outside and getting fresh air was the one thing that I really needed um not sitting on a sitting on a stationary bike wasn't going to do it for me and so I did. And so for the first, like, I think for about the first week, I did that. Um, I think maybe at about, I want to say like two weeks, as I say, yeah, screw that. I'm putting bike shoes on. Um, if, <laughs> having a ruptured, like a fully ruptured MCL, like with no end point, that was, that was a little, that it was a little challenging. So I was, and of course, it was my dominant leg that I normally like clip out and step down on. So it's just like, okay, so you're allowed to do stuff, but you have to. It's only on quiet trails um, where it's predominantly flat. Um, and oh, and remembering at the same time that three days, like, so I had had a severely crushed thumb knuckle that had been rebuilt and still had wires through it. Three days after the the accident I fly to Auckland and have surgery to get the wire out of my thumb <laughs> so at this time I'm I, I, I can't actually walk properly I'm trying to ride a bike and I have a thumb which can't change gears <laughs> oh my god perspective is everything this is crazy Annabelle and so I learned, I learned how to change with my um, with my my index finger and just like shoving it so you know, but it was what I can do, not what I can't do. Yeah, 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 no, this is just so inspirational. Let me ask you, I mean, you're only six months into recovery. Do you have mm. any goals of entering any races? Do you want to do any more competitions? Is that going through your head at all? I, do you know what? It's it's a really interesting question. I've been asked this a lot, I think. I cannot, I, it almost makes me want to vomit. I'm so repulsed by what has happened to the sport and the state of politics. And I don't know whether that aligns with my values right now. That repulses me more than like, no one can stop me going and doing, going out and doing, whatever activities I, I like and enjoy. What guts me fundamentally is seeing something which is a shit ton of fun that has, like, it has been amazing things 
and seeing it die a really painful, drawn-out death, and no one will have the conversations that need to be had as to why. Because we can make, we can, we can fix it pretty much overnight if we have some really honest, open, and robust discussions. Let, let's shift gears for just a second to that because this is something that I've heard from other people within the industry, and not to throw any. I don't want to get into throwing anybody under the bus, but you don't need to. When you say that, you know what what stands out to you that's that needs the most fixing. The fact that two governing bodies of sports are fighting over something that they do not truly understand and they do not invest. They haven't invested any time getting to know. Well, they kind of have, but haven't really. And they're trying to control and fight over, but there's no respect. Like, fighting over 100% of zero is categorically zero yeah no this is uh this is something and and we're referring to if you're if you're listening to this show there is a battle going on to who is going to be the governing body of the sport as it moves forward the international canoe federation and the what is the surfing, surfing associate surfing association and what probably disappoints me the most was in June last year, I took it to the IOC Athletes Commission because there was so many under what I deemed to be, what I felt were very underhanded things going on from both sides that were, they were not in the best interest of athletes. And as an athlete, I felt... Like it was like there was bribes going one way, there was bribes going another. Sign here, and oh, in the small print, you pledge your allegiance to, right? A, you know, a party. Well, come over here, and um, oh, don't tell anyone, but we'll actually pay you to come. Right. On the other side, uh, okay. Um, if I go and do one, that puts me um in breach of this potential contract over here, which I've had to sign an NDA on. Uh, because obviously they don't want people to know what's going on there. Just be transparent. All I'm saying is be transparent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't invested in something, are you just land are you land grabbing for the sake of land grabbing? What guts me is that there is a generation of kids that have grown up, you know, when they were like four and five, going or watching Battle of the Paddle Guy. I want to do this. And they went away and they toiled and they practiced and their skills are phenomenal. And we've taken away everything that I grew up knowing the Olympics to stand for. Yeah. And that's what, like I, I had, I caught up with kids that, well, they're not kids, they're teenagers now, um, that I have coached over the years um, in Auckland at the weekend and I had to have this very conversation with them. And I was just like, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I said, everything will sort itself out eventually. No one can stop you doing the work. No one can stop you working on your skills. No one can stop you turning up to practice. But go and play soccer. Go and surf. Go and do these things which are going to make you a better person, a better human, 
a better athlete and keep this as fun until it sorts itself out. Yep, yep, stay out of the weeds. It's just so weird. Oh, so frustrating. And no one will be on it. No one will have an honest conversation about it. Everyone wants to duck for cover. Yep. It's like the elephant in the room. And I'm just like, why? Like, I have no vested interest. I'm not paid by anybody. I, I haven't been paid by anyone for a long, long time. For me, this comes from a passion, like a place of we have a responsibility to leave things better than we found it. Yeah. And when I see people, well, entities or people that are in positions of power asserting dominance over people that are in a weakened situation, and let's face it, like it's just going through the, it's just going round and round the court of arbitration of sport. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the only people that win those games are lawyers. Yeah. And depending on who wants to throw the most money at it, no one else wins. You know, from an outsider's perspective, it just is very interesting to me that neither of these two, the association or the federation, neither of these two organizations have ever vested that much no. time and industry Nothing. into the sport. It's just finally when this sport arrived, they decided they wanted to own it. And that's where I have the trouble. Okay. And you know why? Because... There is huge, vast amounts of money that are tied up with the numbers associated with sport. Mm. And so if something is an Olympic sport, uh, like, dare I say it, how many people are taking up uh, Canadian canoe paddling? Like, yeah, C1. Yeah. Um, pretty, pretty much, like, I don't know. We have a really strong sprint canoe program in New Zealand. Uh, if you were lucky, you might be able to find an old, like maybe one old one lying somewhere. Yep. But they're not even, it's an Olympic sport and we're still not even prepared to invest in it. No, no, no. Um, so you, when something is dying, they'll look to, oh, here's something that's young and it's fresh and we think it, oh, maybe we'll just, all these people, we'll go and take, we'll, we'll take that instead. And then you have what most people forget about the surfing association is the ISA is fundamentally a media and events organization. Yeah. Like to host um, an ISA world championship, you pay a hosting fee, like the the host location um, pays a hosting fee of around half a million US dollars. Um, Everyone who goes has to, like if I was, Say I was to go to China last year, um, as I was typically, well, I was meant to until I fell off a cliff. Um, they, I would have been paying about approximately 1,000 US in entry fees alone. And for, so for the longest time, one of the reasons why I did not attend any ISA events was because I was like, that's taking me away from something that is earning. This is how much it's going to cost, and I'm not going to get anything out of it. Yeah. Other than like a couple of, you know, maybe a, if I sh- there's so it'd be like there's a huge expectation to win. Um, I'm not going to get anything out of it. I'm not going to get anything that I don't already have. Um, you know, I, I still deemed the likes of Battle of the Paddle and Pacific Paddle Games and Molokai and 
other things to be vastly more important as an athlete playing my trade and professionally in a very nice sport and actually making it work. Right. No, I, it's extremely frustrating and, you know, just, just being around, you know, whitewater and, Mm. you know, canoe slalom for so many years, I have seen the Olympics is no golden ticket. Oh my goodness. It's not. I think this is the, I, the, so much of snowboarding wishes they hadn't gone down that path right now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's this, it's this grandiose thing and, and it's just, but when it happens and, and you look back at history, I mean, look where, you know, canoe slalom is at right now. It, you know, the, I, the, it's just, there's, there's no energy being put into it. It's just a refinement of rules and it's so in the weeds and so inside baseball that the general public can't even figure out what's going on. You know, it's, uh, no, it's, uh, no, I'm, I'm super sympathetic with what you're saying there. I'm not as understanding about what's going on with paddle boarding, but I do know that this thing is going on between the surfing association and international canoe federation. I think what, I think it's more the, what it impacts and affects. And so because there's no, because there's no decision, we don't know where anything's heading, so it's just treading water, yep. and that's not good for an industry. It's not good for a sport. It's not good for manufacturers. No one knows where to invest. There's no leadership. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's no leadership. There's no plan. I'm like, I've been trying to rally the tro- well, essentially rally the troops or influence in various different ways over the years, and going, okay, we actually need a strategic plan. How about that business planning? Mm. <laughs> um. You know, let's decide what we want to be. And we might, we can change that over time if, you know, uh, external circumstances dictate that we should probably actually look at different things. But in my, like, from the research that I've done, I still feel that we have, I I believe that we tick the boxes as a sport to self-govern. But... Until the egos get dropped, until, um, you know, there's a point of necessity, which I'm like, everything's on life support right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so funny seeing, like, all these people, like, uh, well, it's not funny, but the irony of the situation of most people don't have a contract this year. A few people do. Uh, but there's a significant amount that don't. And I'm like, okay, so... Maybe it wasn't such a great idea to decide that everyone had to move to 14-foot boards because 14-foot boards, you can't get on planes. But 12-6, you can. So do you want to have a race that people can actually get to or one that they can't? Yeah. Have a think about that. No. <laughs> and it's <laughs> it's not ideal, but do you want something rather than nothing? <laughs> and that's the conversations that actually have to be had. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to take our listeners too far into the weeds on no. this topic, but it is certainly something that needs to be hashed out. And in my opinion, it's the event organizers of things like Battle of the Pa—I mean, um, Carolina Cup, um, Pacific Paddle Games, these events like Molokai, and I just think independently they are actually leading the sport. You know, they're keeping people engaged and on their bucket list to go do the Carolina Cup or to go do Molokai someday. So I don't know. The, yeah, the, all the all the numbers on all those events have drastically dropped. And I, I just, like I said, 
the whole thing just feels as though it's on life support right now. Um, That's and, very interesting. You know, it. I, I think it's sad. I, I can't really do a hell of a lot to help. Um, you know, I could see the writing on the wall in 2016 um, when I hadn't been paid for months on end. Um, so I peeled my stickers off and um, went it alone. Um, you know, 2017, I was just like, well, if this is if this is the last year that we're doing this, I'm and like when I say I've, I I mean that quite truthfully because I was like, well, I'm just going huge. I'm gonna go to every place that I've been meaning to go to for ages, do the things that I've been wanting to do for a long, long time. Um, but the, I, like we always used to this, had this joke of like, you know, someone's gonna get really sick of like writing out checks and it doesn't pay its way. <laughs> so at the end of you know like we we've had that with a number of events like um what was it the what was the one in like cascade idaho you know like they got sick that that rich guy just got sick of writing out checks i'm pretty yeah. sure of it you're talking about the one at the whitewater park there yeah yeah kelly's whitewater kelly's park. whitewater it was park, great yeah. it was great but i'm like you're Either this is a massive tax write-off for you and you have to spend the money on something and you feel good, but I'm pretty sure there's probably you probably dropped about half a million bucks putting this on. Hey, we've had a great week. Awesome. <laughs> but that is not sustainable over time. Um, and so I think at the end of 2017, or like it was after at the end of Battle of the uh, Pacific Paddle Games, like they have these amazing big printed banners that are be- like they're beautiful, um, like all over the show. So, you know, I'm like they've got 2017 on them. They're only going to be thrown out. So, and they're cable tied on, and of course I've got my tools with me, and I'm packing up my stuff in the dark um, because I don't have a team to like do that shit for me. Um, and so I was like, you know what? I'm just like going to go and take all these banners. I'm going to take a bunch of banners and take them home as a memento. I'm going. <laughs> so I've still got them. Um, and like I, I, I'm, I reckon it's 50-50 whether that event will actually run this year. Right. On Pacific Paddle Games, really? Yeah, because the Enthusiast Network just got bought out by the same company that owns Men's Health magazines. Mm-hmm. And anything that's not that there's been there's already been a massive clean out of people in the wake of that at the enthusiast network so where yeah anything that my understanding was that anything that's not profitable um or not making money or at least um paying its way is no longer um so yeah just i think this whole thing of like you just can't be complacent so i just had this thing of like just be present just be incredibly grateful for what we do have. If you have the opportunity to do something, do it now rather than wait because something might not actually be there by the time you do that. But no one can stop you going and having fun. Right. I'm just so grateful that I got to not only be at Battle of the Paddle, like I got to win it at its peak with like 10,000 people on the beach. I yeah. don't know how you explain what that is because we haven't had anything like that ever since. Well, I would love to see that come back. I mean, just for the young people in the sport. I was there that year. It and was 
the energy so was off incredible. the hook. The surf was big. Yeah. Um, you know, I would love to see that come back. And I really don't care, you know, what sport it is, but it's just so rad when that kind of energy is there and that crowd involvement. And it just, I mean, it's absolutely incredible. There's, yeah, there's been a bunch of photos floating around in the last couple of months of, you know, the, the best of BOP of like people like landing in the pit and, you know, like the pit as in uh, where you, exit the water onto right. the beach and you had to have a board caddy and what people don't realize is that Doheny State Beach is not actually a really it's not a sandy beach it's it's a rocky stony beach and you pretty much know every single rock and stone um, personally and by name because it's probably punctured your board <laughs> your your feet your skin um, in some way shape or form over the course of a weekend after <laughs> you've been there and there's just these amazing, incredible memories. And, like, because I – so, yes, I went there first in 2010. Had no idea what I was doing. Twelve months late – well, 2000, end of 2011, I fell at the hammer – like, I fell at the hammer buoy, like, on the last – you know, the last turn of the hammer buoy and got third. Um, then – it took me then, you know, from that point on, then I went on my winning streak. Um, but I don't, yeah, so it took me, it basically took me 12, you know, it, it really only took me 12 months to win it. And I don't think we've had another athlete that's been anywhere near as dominant or consistent. And I didn't come from a surfing background. So when I look at, oh, and dare I say, I'm probably like looking more at the girl side of the sport rather than the boys side I, I look at these people that have now been there for years and I'm like honey you better start to deliver <laughs> <laughs> like I'm not saying that thing like I'm just going it is possible <laughs> and, and that the irony is though is that the same people that I started doing stuff with are the same people that are kind of there now with a couple of changes and that either says to me that we don't have enough younger kids coming through or or a lot of it is actually skill-based yeah i think it's an influx of new competition personally and i think that's the that's a, that's a very important thing for any sport to have is the junior class needs to be hot i mean it needs to be what oh, people are looking the junior at. okay so junior classes in any sport actually need to be given a little bit of respect like don't call them the kids race yeah. there's under 16s there's under 18s you probably have, you might have under 23s yeah. and, and call them that. Do not call them the kids race. No. Do you want to be called a kid when you're a 17 year old guy? No, no, no. Last I mean... time I checked, last time I checked, no. no. <laughs> and it so much comes in how we present things to the outside world as well as, yeah, you might call it the kids race, but don't call it that. <laughs> and don't expect them to turn up on like adult sized equipment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, everything you're saying is from someone who's been out there doing the sport for so long seems so obvious, but it just gets so overlooked when you start looking at a balance sheet. I don't know if that makes I any know. sense. It um, totally does until you realize that, like, lifestyle, like, sorry, life cycle of customer, of if someone starts doing stuff um, when they're younger, 
they're going to need certain types of equipment. If they continue doing that, then they will need to get other types of equipment. So the sooner you bring them into that customer lifecycle journey, the longer you have them. But you've got to give them a reason to keep turning up. Mm, there's no doubt about it. Well, well, Annabelle, this has been an incredible interview. Um, incredible stories. The inspiration is off the hook. There is so much that I learned on this show, and thank you so much for sharing. Um, to close, what do you want to leave with our listeners? What aha moment, lesson learned, piece of knowledge, anything like that can, can you offer our listeners? Just commit to showing up every day. <laughs> Doesn't matter what you're doing. Just commit to showing up. I like that. Well, where can, uh, where are you, I follow you on Instagram. Is that your preferred medium of communication with the outside world or where can, uh, where can our listeners follow you? The harsh reality is if anyone puts my name into Google, then some form of media channel will pop up, <laughs> which they can reference me by or uh, get hold of me if they really want to or choose to. Um, <laughs> I think that's the other thing of, uh, yeah, there is no secrets in this world. <laughs> you get undone very quickly if you try to, to tell them. Um, yeah, like if you if you type in my name, I'm... I, I am definitely not that well-known and uh, not that famous, uh, but if you make an effort to, to find me, you will be able to. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Hammer Factor, Annabelle. You're welcome.